welcome to the Presto Classical Podcast. For our final show of 2020, joining me live via satellite all the way from the US of A, the founder and executive editor of ClassicsToday.com, someone whose talking head has in just a few months clocked up almost a million YouTube views, it's Dave Hurwitz. Hi, how are you? Thank you for having me. (laughs) On the show, we're having a little bit of a transatlantic cultural exchange. Dave has very kindly selected five of his favourite but lesser-known British compositions, and I've returned the favour, picking up five American works. Let's start with a bang with the first of my picks, the arresting opening of Carl Riddle's Sontreader, performed by the Boston Symphony Orchestra and Michael Tilson Thomas. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> thump, 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 ba-da. I can sing it. Ba-da, You know, it's great. Dave, Charles Ives is often regarded as the quintessential American maverick, but surely Carl Ruggles, a man who claimed that he never learned any music theory at all, even more accurately fits that description. Yes, and his music sounds like he never learned any music theory at all, doesn't it? I mean, is he a maverick? Well, yeah, I mean, yeah, he was. I'm sort of maverick sensitive because... Charles Ives, you got to understand something. Charles Ives came from Danbury, Connecticut, which is where my father came from, and which is where my father's family lived and where I spent my time. And my grandfather sold auto parts to everybody in Danbury, including Charles Ives. You know what I mean? So I, I, I have this. And he went to my high school, Hopkins Grammar in New Haven, before going to Yale. And while normal high school children were listening to rock and roll, we had these Charles Ives festivals, you know, things <laughs> like that. So... I'm very partial to Charles Ives, but he was friends with Ruggles. They were they were they were close friends, you know. So and Ruggles was one of those guys who didn't know whether he wanted to compose or paint or or you know do all kinds of stuff. And he was he was a grouchy old New England curmudgeon, you know. I think his music's great. What particular do you enjoy about Sun Treader? Um, it's noisy. <laughs> no, what, what I like about it is that what I like about it is that it's it's angular, but it's melodic. I mean, it has, it has, you can follow it because it has incredibly distinct motives and gestural ideas. And also, you know, when you think about the, the piece and the motive is, you know, sun treader, life and light be thine forever. You know, I mean, you know, walking across the face of the sun. I mean, it's sort of hard to imagine a musical equivalent to that. But if you had to, I mean, <laughs> you know, something that's sort of like incredibly intense, scorching heat you know, that sort of thing, then Ruggles does a pretty good job, I think, approximating that. And also, if you look at the score, you know, he he has wonderful, wonderful sort of descriptions of what the music's supposed to be like. You know, there's one point where he marks like a shower of gold, (laughs) you know, and it's like, okay, well, what does that sound like? (laughs) You know, so you can see that he's, he's, he's grasping for something very transcendental in the piece. 
and and it does that and it does that in in an, in an uncompromising way so you know you got to admire it they, your first pick is George Lloyd's magnificent fifth symphony I believe you have a personal connection to George Lloyd oh yeah no it's it's a beautiful work you know you know Lloyd Lloyd was one of those composers he was such a discovery because he's a modern composer writing romantic music but it's not like fakey fakey romantic music it's real romantic music i mean it has that obvious emotionalism it has the love of orchestral color it's it's you know formally kind of big and loose and sort of out there and the fifth is i mean it's in five movements each movement is a sort of character piece it has a pastoral and then a chorale and then a a dance like scherzo and I gave the U.S. premiere of this piece in my in my wonderful little community orchestra, the New York Symphonic Arts Ensemble, and they were they were wonderful people. They 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 evolved out of the NYU, the New York University Doctors Orchestra, and so they were very very professionally well qualified. And if you had like a, a seizure in the middle of a concert, you could <laughs> you didn't have to worry because the whole violin section could treat you. <laughs> And and um, they they put me in charge of the repertoire committee, and so we did all kinds of crazy stuff. And I was dying to do a, a Lloyd Symphony because they were so they were so beautiful and fun to play. It sounded like anyway, and we did it. We did the the premiere of the fifth within just a few like moments of Lloyd conducting the the British premiere. I think he did it in Brighton or Bournemouth or someplace like that, and we were very excited. Yes, he's a composer who was very sadly neglected by the British musical establishment post-war, ran by a man called William Glock, who looked very much down on music that wasn't the latest avant-garde. So unfortunately, he had to he retired, semi-retired as a composer to run a farm in Dorset and then was writing these symphonies early in the morning and then got back to his farm. That's it. He was, he was, he was injured in World War II. He was very sick for many years. He sort of composed his way back to health. And the Fifth Symphony was one of those works, you know, where he did that. It was the fourth and the fifth. And and he was he was another, you know, talk about Mavericks. I mean, he wasn't a Maverick stylistically, but he was a, a lovely curmudgeonly kind of guy who would you know, we, 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 we would chat and when we when we did the symphony, I have to tell you, it was really very funny. He he, he posted it off to us by surface mail. We were he thought he had sent it airmail, but he was a little bit vague about these things. And so I spent a great deal of time speaking to customer care with the Royal Mail, trying to figure out what boat this package was on that had the scores and parts. And, and uh, we finally were able to locate it in, enorm- in an enormous United States Postal Service sorting facility in Hackensack, New Jersey, um, where we needed a special, special permission to sit in the parking lot while they went through about three billion packages to try and find it. So that we we missed the first rehearsal as a result of that, but we found it. So let's have an excerpt from George Lloyd's Fifth Symphony. This is the central rondo section performed by the Philharmonia Orchestra and conducted by Sir Edward Downs.
My second pick is another composer you have met, Dave. But if Beethoven was born 150 years later in Boston, not Bonn, might he have turned out something like Harold Shapiro's Symphony for Classical Orchestra? Nah. (laughs) (laughs) I I don't think so. (laughs) You know, know, Harold Shapiro was was a, a fanatical devotee of Stravinsky. Stravinsky was his model. I mean, he had models. Uh, you know, he he would pick a a classical model and then reimagine it as uh, you know in the in the idiom and conceptually as Stravinsky might have. So you know, his relationship to Beethoven was the same thing as sort of Stravinsky's relationship to to, to Baroque and, and and classical masters. He used them, he used them, you know, for formal purposes, um, and then and then he would just sort of run with it in in a, in a modern way. And this was a piece that was championed quite a lot, but then seems to be completely neglected these days. Well, that was partly Shapiro's fault because he sort of, you know, he, he, he thought writing music was really a pain in the neck. <laughs> you know, he, <laughs> he, he felt that he felt that, uh, you know, people weren't going to play it accurately. His music's very difficult, very rhythmically intri- intricate, and he wasn't getting performances. And it, because of his debt to Stravinsky and his, his, his love of music of the past, he was considered to be somewhat unoriginal. By by even his contemporaries who would have been, uh, you know, like Copeland and whatnot, you know, who would have been open to that neoclassical aesthetic. But he was he was sidelined like so many attractive, tonal, talented composers were. And he had a very good teaching position at Brandeis University and he was happy. And he sort of he just sort of said, eh, <laughs> the heck with it. Fantastic. Well, let's have an excerpt from the slow movement, correctly placed second, as it should be in the classical symphony performed by the Los Angeles Philharmonic and Andre Previn. Now, your next pick is Tippett's Piano Concerto. Would you say there's some Beethoven influence here, Dave, particularly Beethoven's fourth piano concerto? There's a lot of Beethoven and Tippett generally. And yes, uh, you know, I mean, Tippett himself said so. The piece, I love this piece. I really do. I mean, if you, I just want to, I just want to give a shout out. You know, Tippett's, you know, orchestral music is kind of gnarly and difficult in the sense that, that he really was like Beethoven, a composer who struggled. You know, he struggled with, with the the substance of, of of music and how it was going, you know, it was going to beat it into submission to express what he wanted to. But in in the in the piano concerto, first of all, the idiom is quite closely related to his opera, The Midsummer Marriage, which is beautiful. So it makes a lovely entree into into his sort of first period. And and second of all, uh, he really wanted to stress the lyricism, the music's lyricism, just as Beethoven does in the fourth piano concerto. It's a very singing lyrical work, very very beautiful. I was once at a pre-concert talk about Michael Tippett and the explanation was that whereas Benjamin Britten was like Mozart, he had a very easy facility, uh, Tippett's music is much more hard-wrought like Beethoven's. Would you agree with that? Oh, absolutely. 
Absolutely. He was another character, by the way. You know, he invited me to Boston to the premiere of uh, The Mask of Time. And, you know, Tippett, you know, I was we had a very we had a very entertaining lunch. And, you know, I, I was pretty straightforward about the fact that I just didn't understand how he could set the English language in such an awkward way. <laughs> you know, I mean, you know, The Mask of Time has the, the best, the all time most unresonant line of text of any piece of music written by any human being ever. Do you know what it is? No. Nope. Well, I'm going to tell you. <laughs> Here it is. Here is the text. It's. What's it all about, asked the dainty lacewing, her mandibles wet with the juice excreted by her own ovipositor. <laughs> easy for you to say, but yes, not so and easy it, to and set and to music. And when he sets it to music, he gets, he gets the, the stress on ovipositor wrong. <laughs> you know, that was Tippett. You know, it's, it's ovipositor. But when he does it, it's, you know, her mandibles wet with the juice excreted by her ovipositor. <laughs> you know, it's like, holy crap what the hell is that you know but that that was that was that was tippet he had his his style and the piano concerto is just is just you don't have to worry about the ovipositor it's not in the piano concerto <laughs> it's just a beautiful work fantastic let's hear a bit performed by stephen osborne the bbc scottish symphony orchestra and conducted by martin brabins Dave's next pick is Frank Bridges' second piano trio, and whereas George Lloyd was dismissed in his time for being too conservative, Frank Bridge was criticised as being too modernist. What were his main musical influences, and what are your favourite works by this composer, who is, for me, still underrated, especially here in Britain? Well, I haven't actually figured out what his influences were. <laughs> I mean, you know, he was he was a modernist. I mean, he was, you know, his style, he started out, let's put it this way, as a not terribly interesting, you know, sort of late romantic, kind of pale, uninteresting British composer of a generic type, and then he he really he really evolved into into something special. And I, he was interested in in modern music. He was interested in Bartok. He was interested in Berg and the Second Viennese School. I mean, that's how he interested Britain in those composers. Of course, Britain was his big pupil. But the Second Piano Trio, I I just. I find it just a haunting, haunting piece. It has, it's icy cold. It's very creepy. You know, it has these, these almost frozen, numb textures. And, but again, again, it's, it, it, the argument isn't hard to follow. And, and the, you know, the writing is very, very skillful. It has very open sonorities, you know, with very spare lines in the piano and the instrumental lines, you know, well spaced out. So it's, it's, it's fascinating to hear it almost as a sound object in space. You know what I mean? I, I don't know. I don't know how else to describe it. It's, it's, it's disturbing in, in, in a way, you know, emotionally disturbing. It's troubled. His, his late music tended to be, but, um, but, but very compelling. Who was, of course, Benjamin Britten's teacher, and perhaps some of the music that you find in pieces like Turn of the Screw come from this? 
You think? Uh, well, I, you know, yeah, possibly. I think, I think, you know, like all good teachers, I think he was really able to help his, his students find themselves. They don't sound like him, particularly. And again, if you had to say to me, you know, what does Bridge sound like? That's one of the reasons I think he's not as popular as he deserves to be. Because he doesn't have an identifiable sound like other composers do. And, and his style evolved so greatly from the, the early somewhat, you know, anonymous works to this very sort of compelling but, but somewhat gnarly later style that, um, you know, you don't say, aha, that's Bridge when you hear it. You just say, ooh, what's that? Yeah, he, he doesn't fall fit into an easy narrative of English composition, certainly, that thinks, you know, well, it was dead until Edward Elgar came along and wrote all these marvellous Germanic symphonies. Frank Bridge doesn't sit easily into that narrative. No, he doesn't at all. He doesn't at all. His style was, was, was he had styles, plural, you know, and, and they really, even when you, you think about, you know, for example, the Britain-Frank Bridge variations, right? You remember the variations more than you remember the tune. He wasn't a tunesmith. You know, Britain's variations are character pieces, so they're fascinating and, 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 and full of character. But the actual theme, I can't for the life of me remember <laughs> how it goes. And, and that's why Britain, I think Bridge became more interesting as he became more harmonically interesting. He wasn't a tune guy. And what are some of your favorite later works from him? Well, I mean, there aren't that many of them, are there? I mean, I think really the the first big piece that that's worth listening to. I mean, it was the C, of course, you know, which which I played in my community orchestra. <laughs> we did the C, but you know, Enter Spring, which is absolutely a masterpiece. You know, I mean, is is big tone poem, and then you know the late works, Oration and Phantasm. You know, the orchestral pieces, and then the late string quartets, which are which are really really remarkable. And if you like, you know, the Bartok string quartets, or you know that kind of that kind of stuff, then Bridge, Bridge, I think, will be appealing. It's like Bartok without the folk influence. <laughs> well, let's have an excerpt of the ethereal third movement from Frank Bridge's second piano trio, performed by Jack Liebeck, Alexander Chalcian and Ashley Wass. Piano Quintet by Amy Beach was a real discovery for me this year, Dave. How does this quintet match up with the classics of the genre from Brahms, Schumann, et al? And what were the main influences in the New England school of composition? Well, you just named them. <laughs> <laughs> Brahms, Schumann, those people. Well, it depends who the composers were. You know, I mean, because the New, it's like anything else. The New England school was not monolithic. I mean, there were all kinds of, you know, different, different, when it was the United States, you know, it was a melting pot of influences. But but Beach, Amy Beach, was very, very specifically a composer in the Germanic style. That was her thing. I mean, you know, she was, and her and her quintet, which is really, I think, her greatest work um, in a lot of ways. It, it's, it's a big, bold, Brahmsian piece of music. I mean, it really is, but a good one. I mean, if you're going to copy, copy well. 
you know, and she copied well in that piece. Was there a sense with American composers that they needed to first feel that they needed to master the style that they've inherited from the Germanic tradition before they could sort of strike out on their own? They needed to prove that they could do just as well uh, what Brand and Schumann were doing before develop new start, new, a new style. It was true of all of them, wasn't it? <laughs> I mean, everybody went to study in Leipzig. All the English composers did. I mean, Sir Arthur Sullivan, who is England's greatest composer, <laughs> I don't mind telling you, right now. I mean, Elgar is a pygmy next to Arthur Sullivan. <laughs> and, and um, you know, seriously, they, they all went to Germany. And that's, that's where they studied until they all started going to France <laughs> to study with Nadia Boulanger. Boulanger. I mean, you know, then they all went to France because, because, because after World War I, Germany self-destructed. And, and the, the European tradition, which is what everybody was working in, um, was, was taken over by, basically by France. So yeah, initially they were all they were all part of that Germanic school. Right. Well, let's have an excerpt from the slow movement of Amy Beach's piano quintet, performed in a new recording this year by Garrick Olsen and the Takash Quartet. next piece is Jennifer Higdon's All Things Majestic. Now I have to confess, as a Brit stuck on this tiny island, I love hearing musical depictions of the vast American landscape, which I haven't yet managed to see in person. Have you managed to head out west, Dave? And how well does Higdon depict the American landscape in All Things Majestic? Oh, hell yes. I mean, I went, you know, I went to university at Stanford, which is in Palo Alto, California, and drove cross country on multiple occasions. And it's a big country. <laughs> it's a big, <laughs> empty country. I mean, there's, there's, there's like little dots of civilization on the coast and then a vast emptiness in the middle. And you have to drive through it. And it's, it's an experience, let me tell you. I mean, when you're in Nebraska... You know, for example, you know, you see a sign that says Lincoln, Lincoln, Nebraska, 300 miles, and you can see it right there. <laughs> you know exactly where you're going to be in 300 miles because it's so flat. It doesn't even follow the curvature of the earth. I mean, it's just flat, you know. So, yes, I have seen it. To answer your question, I'm sorry. Yes, I have. I have seen the vastness. And, it is and how vast. well does Jennifer can depict it then? Well, she does it pretty well. I mean, I'm sort of a, you know, I... I'm, I'm, I'm older. She's younger. I, I, I like Copeland for vastness. You know, I mean, that was he invented the vastness. And I think it's kind of fascinating that a gay Jewish kid from Brooklyn invented vastness in American music, you know. So she's she there, there's there's been no shortage of vastness, but she's 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 a very, very, very talented composer. She really is. I mean, you know, she's and, and the, the, the wonderful thing about it is that, you know, you, you, you kind of get the thing that that, you know, okay, she's a female and it's politically correct to play music by females, especially gay females. I mean, you know, she ticks a bunch of politically correct boxes, 
but you don't have to make any excuses for her music. She's a she's a first class composer. She's a master of the orchestra, isn't she? Oh yeah, she really is. Yeah. She really is, and 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 she also has something to say. Her music has, I think, a, a natural warmth and and an immediacy and and a, um, and a formal elegance and shapeliness that really makes it very very attractive. No matter what she calls it, you know, the pieces work. As music, qua music, you don't have to think about vastness and other things. You know, it's it, it, they're good pieces. There's a wonderful concerto for orchestra, I think. Oh yeah, it, it's great fun, great fun. I mean, I, and her harp concerto too is terrific. We're talking, we're going to talk about harp concertos. <laughs> she did a beautiful <laughs> harp concerto. Let's hear a bit of the glittering, shimmering Snake River from All Things Majestic, performed by the National Symphony Orchestra and Giancarlo Guerrero. As for depictions of British countryside in music, Aaron Copeland said that Vaughan Williams' Fifth Symphony was like staring at a cow for 45 minutes, which is pretty rich given that Aaron Copeland's most famous piece would become Appalachian Spring. Does this view still influence the reception of music by Vaughan Williams and the piece you picked here, uh, Finzi's Intimations of Immortality, on how this type of music is viewed in the US? Well, let's, let, let's, be, let's be fair, okay? I mean, Copeland was... Was, was paraphrasing Constant Lambert, who in his book Music Ho, or one of those sources, <laughs> called the Vaughan Williams Pastoral School a cow looking over a barn gate. So, so Copeland wasn't the first guy to talk about cattle in <laughs> association with the British Pastoral School. Now, now I, I mean, to get to your question, nobody in the United States thinks of Finzi at all. I mean, he's, he's, he's so marginalized. Um, and... And I think partly it's because he died somewhat young, and he was he was a composer. I mean, who had a somewhat hermetic style, you know, of writing. He's another one. He's hard to pigeonhole. I don't really think he's a member of that pastoral school at all. Seriously, I mean, uh, he was in a way. I mean, he was because he principally, you know, was a composer of vocal music, and his famous poet was Thomas Hardy, which I find incomprehensible. I mean, if you've ever read Hardy's poetry, it's like oh. It's not about cows, but boy, talk about, you know, the guy was writing poetry in the 1920s. It sounded like he was writing in 1550. I mean, you know, so, you know, as, as, as someone who was tortured with Thomas Hardy novels in high school, I never understood that. But Finzi is the greatest setting of, you know, does the greatest Hardy settings. They're beautiful. And his, his, his vocal writing, I just think it's exquisite. I think he's a wonderful, wonderful master of, of, of setting poetry. I mean, it, it, the music is, is, is perfectly evocative. It is tonal. It is somewhat romantic. I mean, I think pieces like his cello concerto are magnificent. And the piece I chose, Intimations of Immortality. I mean, if you like Belshazzar's Feast, if you like, you know, those 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 wonderful English choral works, the shorter ones, you know, we're not talking about 19th century oratorio stuff. 
but really the, the wonderful modern manifestation of, of great, great contemporary choral pieces. Um, Intimations of Immortality is a great option because it's 45 minutes long. The poetry is magnificent and the setting is as colorful and attractive as, as, as anybody ever achieved. It's his masterpiece, really. He's up there with Britain as a setter of the English language, isn't he? I think so. I really think so. I think he was just amazingly sensitive to the meaning of words. And, and, and he found the musical equivalence um, very, very effectively. Let's sample Finzi's Intimations of Immortality, a setting of perhaps England's most famous nature lover, William Wordsworth Ode. This is from Our Birth is But a Sleep and a Forgetting, performed by the tenor James Gilchrist, the Bournemouth Symphony Orchestra and Chorus, and conducted by David Hill. recently did a brilliant video on some great but lesser-known harp concertos uh, on your YouTube channel. Uh, what makes William Matthias's stand out for you? First of all, I think he's a tremendously underrated composer. Some people know him for a couple of his choral works and whatnot, but he wrote three fabulous symphonies. He wrote a whole passel of concerti for various instruments. His piano concerti are marvelous, and his clarinet concerto is very fine, and the harp concerto, oh, it's great! It's just great. First of all, I'm a sucker for harp concertos. I just think they're interesting. I think the harp is a very underrated instrument. Um, and and his harp concerto is, is, I think, one of the most timbrely imaginative and beautiful works um, ever written for the instrument. It was written for Ossian Ellis, you know, and, and who recorded it on Lyrita. And it's just, it's just, the finale is so catchy. I mean, it's a harp concerto. You'll go away humming it, you know. It's got a tune. I mean, you can you can really really get into the piece. But it, again, it's it's a very contemporary piece. It has a whole very modern conception of sonority. It does everything you can do with a harp <laughs> that you never want to do with a harp. And um, I, I I can't imagine. I just don't understand why it's not a repertory piece. I really don't. There's an element of William Matthias that he was somewhat perhaps sidelined as a Welsh composer, therefore must write choral music that we expect from the Celtic fringe. So to perhaps to see a harp concerto from him, people think, oh, I don't quite know what that is. But this remains true to his Celtic heritage and yet embraces Bartok style in all, all, all sorts. Yeah, absolutely. I never quite understood the Celtic fringe just because he's Welsh. <laughs> I mean, I've been to the UK. I've been to Wales. I mean, it's 20 minutes away from anything. It's a little country. It's not like the vastness of driving five days, 12 hours a day to get from you know, New York to California. You know, that's, it's just it's a tiny area. And I know that, that, that you know, he's, he's not that different, folks. He's just not that different. He's, a, he's an, a UK composer and a wonderful one in every medium in which he worked. 
We have a very different sense of distance over here, Dave. You know, you can travel 20 minutes and come up with a completely different accent. I actually, well, I mean, that's, you can do that anywhere. I can, I live in Brooklyn. I can go to Bedford Stuyvesant and have a totally different accent. That's five minutes down the road. (laughs) So, you know, I get that. But, but, you know, culturally, musically, you know, it's, 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 it's not that all that different. And uh, I, I just think his music deserves far more attention than it got. Let's have a taste from the jaunty, almost American-sounding finale performed by Ossian Ellis, the London Symphony Orchestra, and conducted by David Atherton. Our final piece is Howard Hansen's Sixth Symphony, since I know you love a bit of percussion. What were Howard Hansen's key musical influences? Could he say he's the American Sibelius, but with a bit more oomph? No. <laughs> <laughs> not, not at all. <laughs> no, well, you know, no, that's, that's, not, that's not true. I think he started that way a little bit, but only in the first symphony, the Nordic. You know, Hansen was, Hansen was one of those sort of white supremacist, racist guys <laughs> a little bit little teeny bit um but he, he he was one of those composers who was 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 part of finding the germanic uh, reinterpretation of sort of the germanic heritage in american music you know he was not he was not a french guy he was not an impressionist he was not anything like that he was a he was from wahoo nebraska and i've been to wahoo you know there's a little sign that says home of howard hansen and the only people who know that he was born there are the people in wahoo but yeah, I, I you know so he started that way, and he did do he did write pieces in a, in a you know like the sixth symphony is a one movement quasi you know several movements in one maybe a little bit like Sibelius's seventh, but then a lot of American composers were doing that you know Harris did it with his third and 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 Samuel Barber with his first and so so that Sibelius was a huge influence on both British and American composers in the in the twenties and thirties and forties. Yeah, whereas in Germany, Sibelius was almost a dirty word. He was very popular in Britain and America. Can I tell you something about that? It's very funny. It's, it's just very funny. When I was when I, I went to Helsinki, and because I was writing a book on Sibelius, and and I, I met with members of the Sibelius Academy, a bunch of fairly grim-looking professors, you know, like three or four of them, and 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 I said to them, "What what symphonic tradition do you believe most?" properly describes Sibelius's style. And to a man, they all said, Brahms. And I just looked at them and said, what? <laughs> Who? You know, because I, I, I know, you know, I mean, I have many friends in Germany. And, you know, if you, if you spoke to a German musician and orchestral player and said, well, you know, doesn't Sibelius remind you of Brahms? They would look at you like you're on drugs or something. You're hallucinating. It's No, it's not. It's not at all. 
Let's round the show off in style with the finale of Howard Hansen's Sixth Symphony, performed by the Seattle Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Gerard Schwartz. Finally, Dave, I think we've all been amazed by the quality and quantity of your videos that you've been able to put up on YouTube this year. Uh, what inspired you for this project, and do you plan to keep on going? Well, boredom and the pandemic. <laughs> I, mean, I, was, I was trapped at home with nothing to do. And, and you know, I, I, I think I told you when we spoke originally, I, I have a horror of social media, which is really ironic because I run a website <laughs> for the past 20 years. And I, you know, I, I mean, I have a Twitter feed that I almost never use and I, you know, a Facebook account that I've never activated. And I, I try to avoid it as much as possible because it just sort of makes me crazy. I'm old school. I like reading. I like words. I like writing. And so I thought, you know, I, but but friends of mine were saying, you know, you really ought to do YouTube because, you know, you'd be a very good stand up comic. And, uh, <laughs> you know, and and uh, I, you know, I'm not I'm not uncomfortable with public speaking. So I said, OK. You know, I'll give it a shot. And and I had just lots of stuff to talk about, <laughs> turned out. So I started talking and I haven't stopped, as you can hear for yourself, you know, and that's that's what it is. And you, you, plan, you plan to keep on going? Sure, why not? I mean, it's, it's got, I mean, I'm up to more than, you know, 4,000 subscribers in the first five, six months, which I guess is okay. I, I don't know how any of this stuff works, um, you know, but... But I, I've done almost, well, I mean, about 450 videos now. And so, um, you know, I don't see if the supply of music doesn't run out, <laughs> then I'll keep talking about it, I guess. I just did my first Christmas album. I don't know if you saw that one. Oh, yes, absolutely. The, the yeah, 12 absolutely. Tones of Christmas, the first dodecaphonic Christmas Christmas album on my own proprietary label, Tinnitus Classics. <laughs> you know, I, 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 uh, I'm having fun. I'm just having fun. And I hope that, you know, people who watch these things have a good time, too, because I, I always subscribe to the theory that music really is entertainment. It's not moral improvement. It's not punishment. It's not something that's going to change your life in a, in a, in a, in a you know, transformative way, unless you're, you know, quite crazy, <laughs> you know, or a performer, in which case it can, I suppose, unless it's your profession. But um I really, I really just want to be entertaining. I want people to, to see these things and then go listen to something. I mean, just, just go listen to something. I want people to listen to the stuff. Well, here's to lots more videos from you in 2021. And this being the final Presto podcast of 2020, I'd just like to thank all the people that have tuned in and especially the people that have made comments uh, about the show. I'd also like to thank my producer, Matt Groom. And I would like to finish with a chorus of Dave's catchphrase now, which is... Keep on listening. Keep listening. Thank you. Have a lovely year, year-end, holidays, all that stuff. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs>